日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey everybody, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris, and today and next episode, we have a great discussion with Elijah Bender, PhD candidate, Fulbright scholar, and environmental historian. Now, it's important to note that the environment in environmental historian refers to resources land, rice, etc., people, what have you, and how it fits into or explains the bigger historical narratives. So, in other words, Environmental history is not the history of the trees and birds and frogs of Japan. And in Elijah's case, the focus is on Kai Province, the home of everyone's favorite Sengoku Daimyo Takeda Shingen. So we have a pretty wide ranging and extremely interesting conversation on the resource management of Kai Province. And so, with that brief introduction, here we go. Okay, thanks for being here today, Elijah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, I, I've already knocked out the, the basic details in our introduction, but、uh, just to kind of kick things off here, why don't you just tell us、uh, about yourself a little bit, what you're, what, you're doing, what, what you're doing in Japan, and kind of what your situation is? Okay, well, I'll, I'll start from there and kind of work backwards. But I'm currently in Japan in、uh, Matsumoto, and <clears throat> I am、uh, doing research at Shinshu University、uh, with a professor named Sasamoto Shoji. Who、uh, is an expert in Takeda studies、um, and kind of Kai province、uh, more broadly.、Uh, but I'm here working on my dissertation research for this year. And、uh, when that is finished, I will go back to the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I'm a PhD student and、uh, hopefully get the dissertation written in a timely manner and then、um, be done with that program. So, At, at dream, the dream of all PhD candidates. The dream of all PhD candidates to be done in a timely、right. manner. That's right. Yes, we'll see, we'll see how well、uh, I'm able to stick with that plan. But、uh, at UCSB, I, I was going to say that I work with a professor named Luke Roberts, who some of your listeners may know, just recently published、uh, Performing the Great Peace, which、right. I think is a very interesting book about the kind of political culture of the Edo period.、Uh, has a lot to do with, you know, The way that samurai actually、uh, did politics, so to speak.、Um, but in any case, he's my advisor in California. And、um, I, my work specifically is focused on environmental management,、uh, environmental use、uh, in the Sengoku period.、Uh, I'm very interested in how people acquired resources、uh, or failed to do so. And the conflicts over those resources, which, as you might expect, were、uh, pretty widespread and pretty serious during, during the Civil War.、Right. Uh, so I'm interested in how people were able to acquire the things that they needed during the Civil War and then how that system transitioned into something that was relatively stable and、uh, certainly nonviolent during the Edo period. You know, people, people still, of course, fought over water rights and so forth. In the Edo period,、uh, but they certainly didn't, it didn't amount to violence, or if it did, it was extremely rare.、Uh, they, so they, that's, they、yes. fought more along、uh, legal lines, if, I, if I'm 
tracking what you exactly i mean yeah absolutely there were still disputes but there's there was accepted uh legal channels through which people uh resolved those disputes during the Edo period whereas uh it was much more likely to result in violence uh during the civil war as as you might expect okay um well so you you mentioned that you were you were in Japan in uh, Matsumoto, which is a lovely city. Um, it's beautiful. For yes. any listeners who have the opportunity to go, absolutely recommend it. I, I'm I'm interested because you're you you said that you're specifically studying uh, the situation in Kai Province, which is modern day Yamanashi Prefecture. So this right. may be a simple question, but why is all why are all the documents for Kai Prefecture in Shinano Prefecture, uh, which is present-day Nagano, or um, Shinano Province, excuse me, which is present-day yeah. Nagano Prefecture, uh, where Matsumoto is located. Well, that is a good question, uh, it, and it, it's a relatively simple answer. But first of all, uh, you do bring up a point about access to documents, and uh, when you're doing medieval history in particular Sengoku period history, the documentary record is so comparatively sparse uh, right. that access access is not the really the real challenge of doing uh, medieval Japanese history. Most of what I- exists is published. And so uh, it's not so much access to materials, but it's access to the people who uh, know those materials. Okay. That's the real challenge, and indeed, that that's how I uh, presented this project to um, uh, for funding proposals. Is that there's there's a comparatively small amount of people who are actually familiar with the the materials, and right. if you really want to learn how to use these materials, you need to learn from the people who who are the experts. So, the reason that I'm here in Matsumoto is because I. I sought out uh, Professor Sasamoto, who is a professor of history at Shinshu University. He's he's a very, I would say, I think it's fair to say he's a prolific scholar. He's published many, many books. Earlier in his career, he was very much focused on the Takeda and the Takeda domain specifically, and he has since sort of branched out. But his research uh, looks at things like climate looks at things like natural disasters, looks at things like resources in the Takeda domain. And so I, I was familiar with his research um, as a graduate student for some time, read a number of his books, and when it came time to apply to go to Japan to do this research, I thought, why not approach him to see if he would be willing to uh, to serve as, a, as an advisor for me? And he was, and so... I ended up here in Matsumoto, which, as your listeners are, I'm sure, well aware, was, of course, uh, part of the Takeda domain eventually. So yes. uh, yeah. while, while, you know, uh, Shinano, Shinshu is not Takeda country per se, uh, or it's, it's certainly not the heart of Takeda country, uh, I mean, there's uh, that kind of stuff has a, has a pretty big presence here still. So yeah, anyway, I've, that's that's how I ended up in uh, in Shinshu rather than uh, rather than Kai. 
Okay. And, and to, for the listeners, to just kind of set some uh, geographic stage, I, I, I suppose. Yeah, Matsumoto is um, in the southern portion of Nagano Prefecture, uh, so old Shinano uh, province. And north of that is when you get to like the actual city of Nagano, which is where uh, the Takeda and the Uesugi had their uh, major conflict site of Kawanakajima, uh, which is pretty much where the city of Nagano was built. Um, so yeah, absolutely, you know, would be at least after Shingen took over Takeda domains. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, so, but actually, this—if if I can just go off on a tangent here sure. a little bit to talk about uh, some, that, some local that's, local stuff. Uh, that's what we're so all about. Nagano is, of course, uh, Suwa is in Nagano as well, and right. you know, the Takeda Suwa rivalry was was a big thing, sort of right at the, I guess, beginning of, of Shingen's career, you might say. And so Suwa is uh, towards from from Matsumoto. It's towards the southeast, which is uh-huh. in the direction of Kai. Uh, and then Matsumoto itself was where the Ogasawara family uh, held sway. Uh, they actually were the ones who initially built Matsumoto Castle, which was known as Fukashi-jo back uh, in the medieval period. Uh, and, of course, the, the Takeda and uh, Ogasawara uh, did battles. And then, as you say... As the as the Takeda pushed further to the north, what would have been the northwest uh, for them, they ran into the Uesugi. So there, there's a really strong, you know, kind of presence of Takeda history even in in Nagano Prefecture. Uh, yeah. Matsumoto itself in the Edo period was the castle town. So that's why you know that's why Matsumoto has the castle and not Nagano City. Right. And that is still kind of a point of contention amongst the locals of Nagano Prefecture. Interesting. If you're wondering, so when I first came here, I, I kind of wondered, you know, out loud to friends and acquaintances, why is the name Shinshu still so popular in Nagano Prefecture? Uh, surely there must be some other reason uh, other than, oh, just because it's a historical name. Well, there is, and a lot of it has to do with the rivalry between Matsumoto and Nagano City. Uh, ah. when, Matsu, when Nagano City was chosen as the prefectural seat, the folks about, in Matsumoto were not particularly happy by that, happy right. about that. And they, they made the case that, hey, we were the old castle town. We have the National Treasure Castle in our city. Matsumoto City is more centrally located. It's in the largest uh, basin in the prefecture. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the Matsumoto Basin is larger than the, than the Nagano Basin, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in order to uh, kind of avoid that issue, publications like the uh, like uh, the Shina no Mainichi Shinbun, let's say, mm-hmm. opted to use the old name for this area as opposed to the new name because because of this rivalry between the two cities. Interesting. So. It sounds like a little bit more intense version of uh, what I find in uh, Aichi Prefecture. Whenever I'm back there, uh, you know, the people, the folks from Nagoya. I mean, they're they're pretty, you know, okay, whatever about it. But uh, uh-huh. those from outside Nagoya, specifically from Eastern Aichi, are very uh, aggressive in proclaiming that they're. They're uh, from Mikawa, not from uh, 
from Nagoya. They 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 use the old province name uh, yeah. and are very very proud to be from uh, from Mikawa. They they don't say that they're yeah. from Aichi. So I suspect that that's the case with a lot of these localities that that used to be the the center of of the old province or used to be the castle town and has now given sure. way to, to a more modern city. But I just sure. when I I first learned that you know when I was here for just a couple of weeks and I thought that was really interesting, kind of some insight into the local you know mindset here. Right, so. right. Well, interesting. Um, I, I'd like to ask you since you've mentioned several times that uh, some of the things, specific things that you uh, look at are um, you know either resources or. Uh, you know the ways that uh, the, the the population interacts with um, the, the you know the, the the resources and the land around them mm-hmm. uh, and how that affects things. So um, you know, of course, I'm familiar with uh, in the concept of environmental history, but I don't think we've really discussed it on the show before. Um, mm-hmm. So if I could ask you to kind of walk us through a very basic outline, uh, just so that the listeners are familiar. Um, about what environmental history is. I don't know if you consider yourself an environmental historian, but obviously what you're doing is very, very closely tied to that. So, you know, I think maybe some of the listeners might think of uh, either global warming or, you know, tree-hugging hippies or something if they think of environmental history. Uh, Uh So, you know, if we could kind of set the stage with that so that they they have a a little bit of an idea of of the approach and, uh, and what it really means. Okay, yeah, I would uh, first let me say that I do consider myself an environmental historian, and I think that there's there's no one uh, definition, and I think that in any subfield, uh, different scholars are going to have different reasons for, for why they self-identify as, you know, well, I'm a women's historian because of, or, you know, I'm a race and gender historian because of, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and the same is true for for environmental historians. Um, I personally didn't really know what environmental history was until I went to graduate school, uh, and it, it was something that appealed to me because I've always been interested in, uh, I guess, what you would say, kind of the the necessities for um, survival, the necessities for you know sustenance, right and uh, just as a as a historical phenomenon, kind of writ large, and so uh, when I started to read some of the work of environmental historians, I, it really appealed to me because I thought, hey, these are these are big, important, and very fundamental processes or challenges or phenomenon that people have to deal with, and I think uh, have pretty strong explanatory power. Um, so that's why I was kind of drawn to environmental history. What it is, at least in my kind of simple definition of environmental history, is that it is the study of the relationship between people and the, the non-human environmental, if you will, elements of their, of their setting. And so that can include... Uh, the land itself, the resources on that land, the weather, the animals, um, all kinds of different things. But a very, to to my mind, critical uh, 
distinction between environmental history and um, just sort of studying a landscape, let's say, is that the emphasis is on the relationship between people and nature. Okay. As opposed to uh, one or the other. And so my, my focus is really that relationship itself. And it's not something it's, it's a, it's not something that is one way or the other, you know, uh, I don't think that, you know, human communities are just sort of, you know, at the mercy of, uh, weather or something like that. Uh, conversely that human communities, you know, just sort of shape the environment, uh, as, as they see fit that influence and that mutual, uh, kind of shaping goes both ways. Sure. Sure. So I, I try to center my analysis in it's the relationship itself. And then you can kind of work from there. I would distinguish that from, from certainly uh, like uh, the sciences where their emphasis is on the non-human aspect of the environment. You know, they they right. want to study the flora and fauna, and et cetera. Environmental history is still fundamentally about people. It's still history, but it's just the relationship of people with with nature, with their place. So uh, would you be able to illustrate that with an example from your, your work itself, just to kind of give listeners sort of a concrete example of what it is that you'd be studying? Well, um, I guess I'll... I'll talk about water for a second because here's something that is, uh, you know, it's probably the most basic, most fundamental, most important resource. And it's something that is uh, generally thought of to be abundant in Japan. Uh, That's one of the reasons why rice agriculture is possible here is because Japan has a lot of rainfall. Japan is actually not a very well-suited place to growing rice. There's a lot of mountains. There's a lot of poor soil. You know, you guys are, I'm sure, familiar with that whole kind of narrative of you got the Kenai Plain, you got the Kanto. You know, those are the really good rice-producing areas. Everywhere else is not so great. Um, So why, in terms of, you might, you know, it's, it's very easy to say something simple like, well, Japan has abundant water or um, something like that. But why, what makes that water abundant? Well, part of it is the, the physical amount of water that is, is in a place, right? But uh-huh. the, other, the other part of that equation is what the community does with that water. How, right. do, they how, they, it? how do they regulate access to it? Yeah. How do they regulate access to it? Yes, but you know, if uh, if you have a, a group of people who you know hunt wild boar in the mountains, which there was plenty of those types of people in medieval Japan, um, they they don't need as much water as the the village that is down in the valley and, and is growing rice in wet fields. So right. for for one group, a water scarcity. You know, anything less than than a huge amount of water is going to be a water scarcity for the village that is growing rice. Rice requires an enormous amount of water. Well, that's that situation is totally different for the hunters who are living up in the mountains. Right. So 
that's that's what I mean by the relationship. Uh, it's okay. not it's not you know you can't you can't just say aha you know Japan has you know x amount of millimeters of yearly rainfall in this particular region therefore um, it, it has a- adequate water. Well, no, that's totally dependent on how the community uses that resource. Um, sure, sure. Okay. And so, so I, I, you know, water's just one ahead. example. There's there's timber. There's uh, you know I'm, uh, with the Takeda domain in, in particular, I'm trying to get a handle on, on uh, mineral resources, gold gold mines, and so forth. Now, as a an environmental historian, do you tie that into the the larger narrative of say the Sengoku period, like how this was affecting the daimyo, how this was affecting warfare, how this was affecting you know what have you, it, or are you looking at this as sort of mm, in and of itself, or or are you kind of looking at it in the bigger narrative? Well, no, of course the uh, the the goal is to try and tie this into some larger significance. Absolutely, I mean. Uh, otherwise, I, I don't think that anyone would be really interested to, to read what I have to say. <laughs> so, but in my in my opinion, I I think that the the ability of people to secure necessary resources, whether that be water or timber or access to land or uh, access to roads, fish, salt, you know, whatever it is that that the, a particular community relies upon. And whatever amounts they need, you know, whatever uh, kind of constancy of that resources that, that they require for their particular paradigm, their ability to either get that or, or to not get it was, I think, a very important cause of local level conflicts in, in the Civil War period. And of course, local level conflict affects small time warriors small time, you know, Kokujin level type uh-huh. people, which has an impact on daimyo strategy. I mean, you know, a, a lot of daimyo military and political policies are directed at what to do about of, with provincial warriors, you know, trying to control them and get them to fight for them, and etc. So I do I mean, think that this, the fights over resources at the local level, I think, do have a big impact on the Civil War and, and, and how the Civil War, you know, was eventually ended and, and transitioned into the very stable, very long-lasting uh, Edo period. I think that the ability of local communities to resolve disputes over resources without violence was a very key ingredient in the creation of stable daimyo domains uh, and once you, once you have stable daimyo domains that are essentially kind of you know miniature countries, if you will, then you know that that is I think the catalyst that really allows uh, I don't really like the word but unification and then you know the uh, the pacification of the country under under Hideyoshi and, uh, and Ieyasu. Right, right. So. If, if I could throw this into kind of a, a, a longer term context, if we're looking at it, you know, prior to the beginning of the Sengoku period, so up through and up into the, the Onin conflict, would it be fair to say uh, that there were mechanisms in place uh, that, you know, whether it was at the local level or at the 
at the uh, the the Kokujin, uh, you know, regional magnate level, um, that there were there were mechanisms in place that helped mitigate this conflict. And when we had the the the, the breakdown of the national, I guess, structure uh, centered in in Kyoto with the uh, the Oni Noran, that then dissipates out into the provinces and these structures break down. And so what you're kind of looking at is how things started generating for themselves without this, this, this other external presence, you know, centered on the capital. And then that provided a base for then the, you know, I'll, I'll echo your dissatisfaction with the word unification, but um, the, the way that, uh, things coalesced back into some sort of semblance of archipelago-wide political control under Hideyoshi? Yeah, I think that's that's very well said, actually. Uh, and I would say that for, for my own understanding of this problem, understanding how things were supposed to be, so to speak, under you know the old show-in system or the Witsudio or something like that. So right. early, early medieval – early Muromachi, et cetera, understanding how things were supposed to uh, take place, how disputes were supposed to be resolved is, is going to be really key for me to understand uh, what things were like during the civil war. And obviously the Muromachi regime never really worked that well. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's, there's always going to be, well, here's, here's how things were supposed to work versus here's, how they actually played out in practice. Right. Um, but nonetheless, I do, I do think there are some key differences between Muromachi and then Sengoku, or I really like to use the term civil war because I just think it's a little bit more evocative, certainly in English and, and it more accurately describes what was going on. It was, it was a civil war. And in terms of for local communities, a very simple way to think of, well, what was the difference? It's, a loss of patronage, which, you know, has kind of pr pros and cons, I guess, but right. basically meaning that most localities uh, have to kind of fend for themselves. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting and, and, and some really interesting points. I like the idea um, that you brought out of some sort of collective understanding of how things are supposed to be because this mm -hmm. is how they were under previous systems. Um, it reminds me, and we've mentioned uh, David Spafford on the, uh, the podcast before, uh, mm -hmm. but if you've read his work, uh, his, his book, um, A Sense of Place, uh, which focuses on the Kanto area in the immediate aftermath of the, the Oni Noran, um, a lot of what he pulls out of reading different uh, documents written by personages of the time is this overwhelming sense of the way things used to be, the way things were sp are supposed to be, and fighting to get back to that or to preserve it, sometimes mm -hmm. at the at the detriment uh, of of themselves because you know they the the particular daimyo or or whomever that he's looking at doesn't realize the need to adapt or change. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or doesn't, you know, maybe they are adapting or changing, but they're trying to fit their adapt their changes into these previous forms because that's the way things are supposed to be. Um, yeah. And I think that's a 
a really powerful idea that was present then that it's taken us a long time to really understand and, and appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, just looking at, at, uh, at, at my own, you know, what I've done in my own research, I, I don't know if there's a particular point where there's a, a that, that mindset changes and flips, you know, a lot of people have attributed, uh, uh, Nobunaga's rise to not, uh, you know, to his, his grand intention to break with the past. I don't know if I necessarily buy that or not, but I, I think especially if you're looking at uh, earlier in the period, you know, prior to, say, the 1570s, there's certainly this sense at, at all levels. And it's, it's not just the daimyo. It's not just, you know, the, the you know, I, I hate to use the word peasantry, but nothing else is coming to mind at the moment. But the, the, the populace, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's there 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 is a sense of this is the way things are supposed to be, and they're not they this way right now. And how do we get back to that? Right. Um, and at the further you go on, the further that becomes an idealized past rather than uh-huh. a um, you know anything that anybody's got practical experience with. So I, I think that's interesting. I, I don't know if you have any examples of documents you've come across or anything that uh, um, that speaks to that, but. Um, you know, I think well, that's, yeah. I definitely agree with the approach. I think uh, so. I'm a I'm a big fan of of uh, David Spafford's book, and he does he does make a very uh, compelling case for I think what he calls the persistent medieval in the book. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think to to go back to kind of one of your points is of you know when did things change and when did you know people stop trying to restore uh, you know, precedent and implement new policies. I do not think that there was some sort of aha moment. And again, we're, we're talking about political elites here, like very, very elite people. You know, any, anytime you talk about daimyo or even kokujin, it's very important to keep in mind that this is a extremely elite group of people. And so whatever they did, is is only going to have an impact so far just because you're only talking about a, a very small group of people but certainly had disproportionate influence but nonetheless i don't think there was some sort of aha moment you know however it is true that eventually so you know someone like nobunaga is a good example eventually it was clear that yeah he was implementing new things uh I think the Morty are another good example of, of a daimyo family that did pretty clearly say, well, this is new. You know, we, we have the authority to dictate to our retainers because the Morty have, they, you know, they were the, one of the first to use the term Kogi, public authority. Right, we have right. the ability to maintain peace, and so therefore that's what gives us the authority to tell you, our retainers, what to do. Right. Uh, and, you know, that that clearly was a, a new way of thinking. So at some point, I guess that transition did take place. But I think most of what what happened was daimyo, you know, like the Takeda and Uesugi and, uh, you know, Asano and all these people are trying to deal with the situation on the ground. And as you say, they're they're trying to get things back to either the way that they were or the way that they would like them to be. They're not necessarily progressive right. in their thinking, 
but the policies that they implement have the cumulative effect to, to, to end up being pretty progressive. Right, and I, I think it's important to note that in many of the cases, it's not that ne- it's not necessarily that uh, Daimyo or other power brokers wanted things to go back completely to the way that they were. They wanted the forms back, but with them in charge as opposed to whoever was previously in charge, or yeah, or some point. something like that. And this this also speaks to, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, so I won't dwell on it. But the the needs for you know some sort of recognized legitimacy in terms of uh, receiving uh, court sanction, receiving titles, even though you know all of these were meaningless, uh, or well, I, I, I shouldn't say meaningless. They ha- they carried no weight right. in and of themselves. Fun- functionally meaningless. Functionally meaningless, meaningless is a great way to put it. But they didn't. But they they carried lots of symbolic weight because of this ex- this this persistent medieval that uh, you know, as Spafford coins it, this this concept of that these things have meaning. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of times it's been characterized by various uh, uh, various historians that that there's you know Nobunaga comes in and somehow throws all this out, or mm-hmm. the the Tokugawa come in and throw all this out, or whatever. And you know I don't I don't think that's quite the case at all. I think uh, Nobunaga certainly had some different ideas in how he approached. Uh, you know, political control and economic control, but I, I, I would not make the argument that he, uh, that you know, oh, okay, everybody's doing the same thing, uh, and then Nobunaga comes in, and all of a sudden everything's different. But we're kind of mm-hmm. wandering off track, so I'll, I'll bring us back um, a little bit, uh, even though that's 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 very fascinating. Um, let, let me see, before you do that, let me sure. say something about legitimacy. I can kind of take this to a local level. Uh, which is kind of more directly impinges on, on my project. But uh, Spafford has – he's made a very good and uh, informative point in that book. And even at the local level, so you know, people who are not particularly concerned with, with politics or domain building or what have you – Right. When it comes down to making their claims, you know, envision a a medieval village who is trying to state claim to a particular forest or a particular waterway and say that we are the ones who should be allowed to use this and to regulate who has access to this resource. How do they make that case even to, let's say, the Takeda? Well, they, they look back to precedent and they say, see, we used to be part of, you know, Nani Nani no Show. And uh, some temple, you know, here's the documents from this temple saying that, you know, this creek is ours, etc. A lot of times okay. those documents were fake, but nonetheless, you know, that the, the use of precedent continues to be important even when the precedent clearly doesn't function anymore and even to, to uh, local people. Right, you know, not gonna, political I'm, elites. I'm going to step in real quick, just for the listeners who may not be familiar with uh, the term "nani nani no show." Uh, uh, I was kind of thinking uh, the same thing. Uh, a uh, a show uh, is part of the show end system, but for for our purposes, we'll just say it's a it's a, a an estate, a plot of land, um, and you know held uh, controlled by a landholder, uh, and so the nani nani is Japanese for such and such. Whatever you know, so uh, the nani nani no show would be like you know 
XX farm or, you know, such whatever and such farm or whatever. Yeah. Such and such and such estate, something like that. Just to, to help anybody who, who wasn't following along with the Japanese there. But, uh, um, yeah, no, I think that's, that's a really interesting point. And, and it, it kind of goes where I wanted to go next, which is, I mean, you know, my research, obviously, I, I, looking at military commanders, military commanders are part of the elite that uh, you mentioned earlier. And these are, they're the, the, you know, whether they're daimyo or whether they're, you know, daimyo sub retainers, they're still uh, part of the, the 1%, shall we say. Um, so in, anyway, okay, so, so these are the elites. Now, I'm interested uh, particularly in their decision-making, both military and political, uh, and how that played out in competition between them. But one of these elements that comes into that is their interaction with uh, the lower classes, the, you know, whether it's uh, the, the, the merchant class or the cultivator class, uh, the, the general population. Um, so I'm very interested in your viewpoint on the interaction between them and how these concerns, like you mentioned, the farmers coming to you know the Takeda and presenting this petition based on historical precedent of having access to you know certain uh, you know forest for lumber or, or whatever it may be. So if I could you know kind of what what have you found so far or what have you seen in terms of the interaction between the, the the commoners, and if there's a better term for that, let me know because we've we've had this debate on the podcast before about peasants versus not peasants versus mm-hmm. you know you know how do you yeah. define Yakusho? Uh, millet grubbing and dirt farmer. Millet yeah. grubbing dirt farmer. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, I mean, we've we we talked about uh, Amino Yoshihiko's views on on the term Yakusho. Uh, yeah. So use whatever you use. But, you know, how did they interact with uh, the, the, the daimyo, uh, present these petitions, and, and you know, just kind of what was that relationship uh, mm-hmm. like? Yeah, um, let me start by uh, talking about terminology a little bit. And so, first of all, the, the term hyakusho uh, in, in Japanese, it still very much uh, carries with it the image of uh, farming, of a farmer, uh, which is not the meaning of the original Chinese word. Uh, right. The, the word itself, of course, just means the hundred surnames, and it literally just means common people, you know, people who are not uh, of status. Uh, that in, in contemporary Japan, the, the image is still very much – if you say hyakusho, people are going to think of farmers. Right. Uh, so I, I'm against equating those two terms because it's clear that Hyakusho in evil period were not exclusively farmers. Um, I do think that the term commoner is, is uh, pretty useful when you want to describe the, the entire non-elite population. And non-elite right. is basically everybody who doesn't have some sort of status. I would, I would include uh, people having status, you know, Temple people do have status. Shrine people have status. Certainly warriors and landlords have status. So anybody who is not in that you know, very select group could, in my opinion, be considered a commoner. Um, when I, I try to be more specific, though, and so uh, a lot of times I, will, I, I like to identify by uh, people's occupations. 
So if I'm talking about farmers, I'll specifically say the farmers of such and such a place right. or the fishermen of such and such a place, the lumberjacks of this place. That's not always possible. And so a kind of plan B is to just identify the place itself and to say, you know, the residents of Yoshida Village. Uh, and then hopefully you can say something about, well, what did these residents do? Well, there was a there was a high proportion of porters that lived in Yoshida Village, uh-huh. you know, to try and give some sense of what these people actually did. But also the complexity of medieval society is so often just completely lost in a lot of narratives that you read about it because it's, you know, as you say, it's like, okay, there's samurai doing stuff and fighting wars and then there's everybody else. Well, medieval society, the medieval economy, uh, the medieval, I guess, industry, for lack of a better word, craft, you know, handicrafts and artisanal products. That was actually very complex. Um, Right. You know, maybe certainly not to the extent of the Edo period, but I mean, there's all kinds of different tradesmen. There's all kinds of different crafts. There is long distance trade that continues all through the Civil War period. Uh, There's widespread use of coins. There's, you know, there's financial institutions, money lending, etc. So I try to, to the best I can, kind of capture that complexity. Now, in terms of what do these people actually think about the, about the rulers and or, – or for that matter, what did they actually think about anything? It's very difficult to get any sense of that because uh, there, there just isn't the sources available. You know, The sources for Sengoku history are from what I would consider to be elite people. The ones who had access to write documents. Well, yeah, that's that's right. Just the knowledge of producing documents is a big is a big part of that equation. Um, so, in terms of their interaction with, let's say, political authorities, I get the sense that for most people, there's there's a general kind of acceptance that somebody is going to be in charge. The kenmon uh, is a Japanese term. Uh, Probably, probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with that, but it means the, the gates, the, the gate of power uh, right. comes from the association of, you know, like a warrior estate or a temple or a shrine, something, uh, a place that has a, a large gate is going to be a person of influence, right? So the the political class in the medieval period, you can just kind of think of them as, oh, that's just, that's the Kenmon. You know, people who have power. And I think most communities, you know, villagers and, and rural folks, etc., they just kind of accepted that, well, someone's going to be in charge. And I don't really know that they cared who that was. You know, whether it was a temple that, you know, they had to pay their, their Nengu to, whether it was some military lord or whether they were able to escape that altogether. You know, I don't think it made a big difference to them. So you know the uh, you know I recently read a book by uh, Vlastos, uh, which was uh, about peasant rebellions in the Edo period, and mm. uh, you really get you do get the impression that the the peasantry or the commoners they they really didn't care or have a stake in who was uh, in control, because mm-hmm. mainly from their point of view, as long as it didn't affect their ability to make a profit and or to feed their families, 
they really didn't care because they had no, it was that sort of the 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 shogunite uh, you know, attitude that yeah. the Japanese still show today. It's kind of, we don't really have any control over who's above us and uh, nothing we can do about it, but we're not going to riot or rebel unless uh, they actively cause us problems in our day-to-day life. That's really the impression yeah. that you get. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I get that same impression in, during the Civil War. And what's interesting is that when you have instances of local violence or when you have, you know, a community that's, that's upset about someone encroaching on their resources and appealing to a daimyo like the Takeda, there's never any question of the legitimacy of whoever's in power. I mean, at least, at least in the stuff that I see. And so this kind of does reinforce this notion that for most people, most medieval people in Japan, they just accept the fact that someone's going to be in power. It doesn't really matter who it is. Uh, what is important is getting that person to recognize their rights, you know, or exactly. uh, appealing to another authority if the person who is directly above them is behaving inappropriately, you know. So, you know, like in the Edo period, if, if the daimyo of some Han is seen as abusive – well, they'll appeal directly to the shogunate, you know. Right. Uh, they, there's, there's never a question, though, of is it right that a daimyo rules this particular area? Well, that's just kind of, you know, someone's going to rule it. Yeah, and usually the, the, the petition was something along the lines of, uh, you know, we, we just want to be successful farmers in your domain. So just please, mm-hmm. you know, so with that in mind, please, you know, take what we say and, and, uh, you know, do something about it, what have you. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, uh, based on my reading of the, the Edo period peasants, it really sounds like that's, that was maybe a longstanding theme of the, uh, the commoners. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, I would, uh, I think it's fair to say that, that, you know, unfortunately it's really hard to, to, to get a very nuanced picture, even in the Edo period, you know, we just don't really know what these people thought. So if I could jump in here, uh, just just on that. Uh, so if if I understand correctly, then uh, because of the, I guess, paucity of sources, you know, they didn't leave the the farmers didn't leave diaries laying all around about, you know, talking about how they were upset that the daimyo did this or that or didn't grant them this or that. Um, is there any way? to gauge at least general feeling towards the daimyo or, or whomever. I guess what I'm looking for is because I'm interested in the, the, the competition aspect, the military competition between, mm-hmm. um, you know, rival factions, not even necessarily just daimyo. But, you know, if you're looking at Kai, we have these stories, this image uh, bequeathed to us from the Koyo Gunkan and, and other uh, narrative sources that, you know, talk about how the peasantry loved uh, Takeda Shingen and, and they all worked together to support the Takeda clan and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. You know, of course, it's really easy to read that and, and question how unified the population was, especially, you know, the, the, lower, spe- the lower end of the spectrum. But I, I'm interested uh, if... You know, and you may not have come across it, but just your thoughts on the general matter of okay. So, if I'm a a farmer 
and I want uh, you know the daimyo to grant my petition to be able to you know uh, dam a stream uh, in order to to put water in my rice fields, uh, mm-hmm. and he doesn't grant that to me uh, for whatever reason. Is it feasible that they would then go and su- provide support to a rival claimant for power over the area because they feel that that person would be, you know, or that somebody else might be more amenable to their, uh, to their needs. Is that, you know, is, is there, I, I guess I'm kind of going around this the, the long way, but looking at it from the daimyo's perspective, uh-huh. uh, is there an incentive to, you know, provide these things to various elements within the society, you know, the, whether it's the farmers of this of, of, of Yoshida village or whatever, in order yeah. to kind of gain their buy-in of his uh, political control? Or is there a threat that if he doesn't, that they would then support uh, either passively or actively, you know, other political options? Okay, so uh, the short answer to that is yes, there's a tremendous incentive on the part of daimyo to do this. Um, And I like to think of daimyo domain building, it's essentially bribery. You're bribing retainers to fight for you. And so the Takeda, you know, when they invade uh, Shinano um, and let's say, you know, they, they defeat the Suwa, well, what do they do with all those Suwa retainers? Well, they offer them rewards and enticements to now come fight for them. Right. I mean, this is something that all of the daimyo are always doing all the time. And if you look at, what is it, Koshu Hapto, uh, Shingen's Law Code, mm-hmm. one of the first items in there is there should be no communication between the retainers of this domain, or, or not domain, uh, well, Kuni, so yeah, I guess domain, there should be no communication between the retainers of this country and other countries. Well, what is what is that actually about? That's not that's not about you know military intelligence and spying and stuff like that. At least not primarily. Right. That's about making sure that his retainers aren't entering into agreements with other daimyo, not just daimyo, but uh, you know other warrior factions uh, could be daimyo, right. you know whatever. It's it's about making sure that that his People, Shingen's people in this case, aren't bought off by somebody else. Right. Or, or uh, even, even, even not necessarily going to that extreme, but part of the main, you know, the fiction of daimyo legitimacy is that they're the ones who who have overall uh, authority to deal with outside, you know, with elements outside of their domain. So. Mm-hmm. If a whether it's a retainer or whether it's a you know a village uh, is having dealings with somebody outside of his control, then they're basically usurping the the daimyo's prerogative of mm-hmm. making those uh, you know uh, of, of making uh, gaiko uh, you know foreign relations. <laughs> in, uh, yeah, but I, so I would argue that the reason that's so important is is because. You know why? Why are the daimyo so hell bent on being the ones who are in uh, the sole position of, of foreign relations? Well, it's not. It's not just because they want to be the most powerful, but it, it's because they don't want. They don't want to lose retainers. Sure. I think that's the most important, especially in in the nascent 
uh, stages of daimyo domain formation in the, in the Civil War period. Well, uh, and going going back to the the idea of having needing to keep the common population happy, one of the large problems of the Shoan system was the absconding of peasants. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and, well, and uh, even going back so far as when there was the uh, the, the public land system uh, with it all underneath the under, you know, you would have peasants uh, or, or cultivators abscond and go live on Shoen because they would get a better deal from the Kemon uh, system than they would from the public system. And then that, yeah. you know, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let me talk about now how this relates to to commoners. Uh, it's very much in Daimyo's interest to keep the people that live on the land, uh, whether that be farmers or tradesmen or, um, you know, the, the priests that live at a shrine or whatever. It's very much in the Daimyo's interest to keep those people happy. And so you see policies, um, you know, from Daimyo like the Takeda. What do they do when they want to expand their authority into a particular place? Well, the first thing is they issue a bunch of Ando documents. Ando are confirmation of land holdings, confirmations of rights, confirmations of you know various prerogatives that they will hand out. These did not just go to warriors. These were not just, okay, here's a confirmation of your fief. Uh, right. These went to all different types of people. They, they went to pilgrimage guides on Mount Fuji saying, okay, you know, you, this group of pilgrimage guys, guides, uh, you guys are, you're the officially endorsed the official guides for Mount, for Mount Fuji. Fuji. Exactly. You know, that kind of and thing. No, nobody, nobody else, nobody can, else can compete. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. And they did this with villages too. And, and landowners who were, you know, not, not warriors. And so what does that do? Well, from the local perspective, it, it guarantees the, their most their most uh, important concern, and that is, hey, if you know we're going to be ruled by somebody, and we just want to make sure that whoever that is in power, whether that be a temple or whether that be this local warrior or this far off daimyo, that they are going to guarantee our rights, uh, you know, usage rights. They're going to guarantee our claims. Maybe claims is a better word to use than rights because we're not talking about like human rights here. Right. And and so, you know, this is a very effective tactic, uh, especially as as Daimyo like the Takeda get more and more powerful. You know, they expand into an into a territory and then they they issue a document to a village saying, you know, here's your here's your Ando certification for, uh, you know, let's say the, the forest on on the south side of the mountain that's by your your village. There you go. Well, that's great because this village just gained a really powerful patron, you know, mm -hmm. who 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 is now going to, you know, if necessary, uh, ostensibly uh, back their their claims. And another thing that's very interesting about this process is that I think commoners were extremely savvy when it came to this kind of thing and they, they played various elements of the Kenmon off of one another all the time. And they sure. were very successful in doing it because they were the ones that actually knew local places very well. And so th they did that to, to a high degree. And in terms of, you know, 
why why are daimyo able to expand their authority so effectively? Well, I don't think I think that the military force that they were able to muster is just a part of the equation. And Absolutely. How did they how did they muster that military force to begin with? Well, it's because for at the local level, who who are the most contentious, I guess, competing claimants, let's say, you know, at a, at a village level or at the level of a rural um, estate or something. Well, usually it's going to be ordinary folks versus a local landlord or ordinary mm-hmm. folks versus another group of ordinary folks, you know, one village versus another or ordinary folks versus a temple that used to hold a show in in the area. So these are very much kind of localized uh, rivalries often. And when one group able, is able to secure the patronage of an elite like a daimyo, that is very valuable because um, they can now basically – they can use that to uh, – as a, as a weapon against their local rivals. Okay. Yeah. So going back to our, our hypothetical Yoshida village here, they gain – you know, they receive confirmation from the Takeda that they're – they have the rights to, you know, the forest on their on the south side of their mountain. And then, what about the village next to them that is also arguing that they have? I mean, would he, would a daimyo then also give them something else in order to to bring them into the fold? Or how exactly uh, does 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 that work? Because I mean, you, you mentioned sending out the ando that that confirm all these things in order to bring sort of them into the fold and, 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 you know, under his, under the, the, the daimyo's wing. But, you mm-hmm. know, if there's two villages next to each other arguing over a stream or a forest or whatever, if he's trying to take over the entire area politically, then would he not have to balance the two of them? Uh, yeah. In that, in that case, yes. But usually the rivalry is between a, a village or, you know, some sort of settlement and a local landlord, you know, like a Kokujin type of person or even a smaller scale, um, you know, warrior that controls, that controls a plot of land. Right. And in, in those instances, it's very interesting that at least the ones that, that I've seen that show up in Takeda sources, the decision almost always goes in the favor of the village or of the, of the common people. Uh, there's, there's one case that comes to mind it, it be, just because it's in a, in a source that I've worked on for a long time, but it actually does take place in Yoshida village, which is not, is not a hypothetical. Uh, Yoshida <laughs> okay. village is, is in the foothills of, of Mount Fuji and, uh, it's a place where there are actually a lot of these pilgrimage guides and okay. a very high proportion of, of Takeda documents that are related to this locality are for these pilgrimage guides. So that to me, that it looks like that's the big industry, you know, in this, in this village is bringing in, you know, pilgrims and catering to, to that, to those people. But Proto-tourism. Tourism, yeah, it, which it is still today. If you go to Yoshida today, it's very much – it's all about Mount Fuji tourism. Some things never change, I guess. Mm-hmm. But so there, there's there's one instance where Yoshida uh, villagers bring a lawsuit to the Oyamada family, which are Takeda retainers, and, or I guess maybe lawsuit isn't the best word, but 
they, they file a claim against uh, a warrior named Watanabe, Watanabe Zaimon, I think is his name. Not really sure who he is, but he's clearly a person of some influence, and he, you know, he's a he's a warrior, samurai, and so they bring this case. It's it's over water rights. Oyamada at the time, Nobu Ari, I think the third Nobu Ari is is in, you know, he's the head of the Oyamada family. They're the big wig Takeda retainers in the area. Well, he's not able to resolve the dispute, and so it goes all the way up to Shingen. And Shingen makes his decision, and he says the village has the rights to this particular uh, water supply. You know, basically tells Watanabe to go buzz off. That's just one example of basically all of the examples of that kind of scenario that I've seen for the Takeda domain always go in favor of the village. What do you think that? What like? What do you think the reason is for that? Is it? Is there? Well, it's because some reason for the trend. Who? Yeah, I mean, okay. So the the daimyo, as we've kind of established, wants to keep. What do they want villagers to do? They want villagers to engage in their occupation, whatever it is, farming right. or you know, guiding tourists up Mount Fuji. They want them to engage in that occupation and pay their taxes. Right. Right. Uh, who are the biggest threats to daimyo's power, daimyo's stability? Well, it's local warriors, right? I mean, there's right. a, this is a pretty well established in historiography, right? Is breaking the power of the local warriors, and you know, of course, Hideyoshi's famous separation of classes and moving the warriors into the castle towns. This is this is kind of well established in in the research that, that this is a key process. Mm-hmm. So, I think that explains a lot as to why you know. A daimyo is very concerned, and a person like like Shingen would have been very concerned with keeping the power of those local warriors in check. And so, I think that that helps explain why he he would often side with the village in in competing claims like this. Okay, that makes sense to me. All right, and there you have it. That's the end of part one of our discussion with Elijah Bender on the resource management of Kai Province. We'll be back in about two weeks with part two, so don't miss it. Now, in the meantime, you can help us out by going to samuraipodcast.com, where you can find links to all the ways that you can support the podcast. You can use our link to make your purchases on Amazon. That kicks us back just a tiny bit to pay for all this stuff. And you can also find all the books that we mention on this podcast at the Samurai Archives bookstore. Or you could go pick yourself up a t-shirt at the Cafe Press t-shirt shop, which is also linked at samuraipodcast.com. Otherwise, if you would so kindly go to iTunes and rate and subscribe to the podcast, that would be great. And so that's it for today. So this is Chris for Elijah and Nate saying thanks and catch you next time.